Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent bass. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. I am the ever-delightful Jason Peters, and with me, as always, is the man who spent 30 days in jail for punching out the Philly fanatic, Mr. Ryan Siebold! What's up, Jason? How's it going, buddy? Not bad, not bad. I, uh, I I know you had a long assorted history with mascots of all variety and sports, etc. But uh, I think that probably your most notorious was the uh, punching out of the Philadelphia fanatic. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, it was almost the ESP end of my career. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, Philly gets weird, dude. I don't know if you've been to Philadelphia, but they are wild and crazy kids up there. Yeah. I've, I've heard as much, yeah. Yeah, so... Never been myself, though. Bucket list. Basically, <laughs> basically what had happened was a <laughs> uh, very short version of the story. I got caught in a lover's tryst between the Philly fanatic... Oh. I know, and Gritty, uh, the Flyers mascot. Oh, my. Yeah. Oh, man. Dude. The the other notorious Philadelphia mascot, Gritty, uh, right. from the hockey team. F- Flyers, correct. is it? Yeah, yeah, dude. Gotcha. That Gritty, wild in bed. Let me tell you. Worth every <laughs> minute. Worth every minute. Um, May as well call him Kinky. Yeah, but the Philly fanatic was none too pleased about such things. And um, yeah, you know, we got into uh, some kinky shit, me and Grit. And uh, I call him Grit, or call her Grit. I don't know what, <laughs> I don't know what Gritty's pronouns are. They, them? Uh, I guess we'll go with they, them. <laughs> so wait, now, is this like something where like the, the fanatic like walked in on you and Gritty or something? Yes. Like, we're like what happened? Yes. So yeah, that, yeah we oh, were wow. caught in a Philadelphia hotel room, which is just a crack den. Let's just be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, otherwise known as a milk crate, right? Yeah. I mean, it was like a refrigerator <laughs> box in a back alley. Um, that's, yeah. That, they're not very uh, hospitable up there. But uh, yeah. So I got walked in on in this, uh, you know, dark alley with uh, me and Gritty. Um, and uh, yeah, the fanatic. And dude, that guy's tall as shit, too. I mean, that's going to not exactly inconspicuous dude this just seven foot lumbering mass of fur like i think a lot of people are gonna notice you do not want to be a power bottom with gritty uh you definitely (laughs) you gotta be a top uh (laughs) but yeah just you know in the throes of passion orange fur flying everywhere and then here comes the green philly fanatic (laughs) Uh, and in true Philly fashion, he was throwing uh, batteries at me, um, just mad and upset. <laughs> Pretty sure it was from the vibrator we were using. And, uh, you know, oh, yeah, which for Gritty needed to be a pull start. You know, I mean, this thing had a full two stroke engine. Hey, two stroke. Hey, <laughs> that's not the only two stroke out there. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, 
I can no longer go cover, uh, you know, Phillies games. It, it, I've kind of been banned by uh, my network. <laughs> it's gotten a little awkward at work. They don't send me to, to cover things up in the old Northeast for various reasons. And a uh, little bit of uh, trivia for you. The uh, Phillies uh, from said Philly fanatic, the Philadelphia Phillies, the baseball team uh, is based right here in Tampa, Florida uh, for their spring training. So uh, we are oh, wow. currently on a lockout. Um, and I am personally on a lockout from uh, the Fanatics heart. <laughs> so it's a sad ending to it. So a- look out, Sheboygan. Ryan's bringing his antics your way. <laughs> yes, that's right. Any, Hey, look, I mean, any excuse we could find to use the word Sheboygan in this podcast. I'm, I'm cool it's a fun word to say. All right. Well, Ryan, we got a film today as we always do. Why we don't do. you go ahead and hit us up with a description, man? Today's film is from a fan. Speaking of fanatics, we're going to get into this shortly, but uh, it's The Beast of War or The Beast, depending on uh, how you found this sucker. Uh, It's kind of listed as both from 1988 from director Kevin Reynolds. Google has this summarized as... Uh, first off, this is way too long of a description for such a simple movie, but uh, we're, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to go at it anyway. A Soviet tank unit led by Commander... Oh, boy... Uh, Daskal. Yeah, we'll go with that. A Soviet tank unit, <laughs> Commander Daskal, destroys a village in Afghanistan in 1981. Taj, played by Stephen Bauer, a member of the village, vows revenge and pursues him along with the Mujahideen. Meanwhile, the radical Daskal turns violent against his unit when he murders the tank crewman uh, for his Afghan ethnicity and leaves tank driver Kovarchenko to be killed by the Mujahideen. Taj, however, offers Kovachenko sanctuary for his assistance against the tank unit. Jason, what did you think about this movie, buddy? I mean, I'll tell you after we listen to the trailer, but first, that's like a summary of the film. That's a good two-thirds to three-quarters of right. the film. That's what I thought. <laughs> a, li- a, little, a little detailed there, Google, but hey, let's listen to the trailer real quick for The Beast of War. No. Konstantin Kovarchenko is a Russian soldier. He's fighting a war he does not believe in. Put him under the track. Under a commander he cannot trust. Forward! In a machine his enemies call the Beast. When the old man gets on your back, there's no way to shake him off. He's torn between following orders. Take him now, he's a traitor. And following his conscience. Shut up! This time your insubordination is going to get you a court martial. Someone killing your own men, sir! Hang that rock! Columbia Pictures presents The Beast of War. Okay, so as Ryan said, uh, this film, I believe, is 
really was released as the Beast, but then kind of since has become known as the Beast of War. You can call it either or. Really, uh, what I want to bring up before we actually really get into this, though, uh, is really just want to give a shout out to a big, big fan of ours, gentleman by the name of Nick reached out to us on Instagram, said, hey, guys, love the show. Have you ever heard of this film called The Beast or The Beast of War? And then went on to tell us about it. Now, neither Ryan nor I had heard of the film. And so we were really pleased to be able to learn about a new film that we hadn't checked out before. And of course, you know, we're always letting you know, like, hey, you know, we're trying to encourage you to reach out and talk to us. And and things like this are exactly the reason why, you know. Uh, and so what we decided to do is it's like we Nick, you know, you're sure you're listening to this right now. We really wanted to do you a solid show you appreciation for reaching out and making this recommendation. So we did this as a one off bonus episode, as I'm sure, you know, where we do the random selections at the end of the episodes. Uh, there's certain films on our list that will literally never get selected or will take five, seven, ten years, probably. And we didn't want your recommendation to just go unnoticed. And we also wanted to let you know that we really appreciated you reaching out to us, striking up a conversation, giving us the recommendation. It meant a lot to us. And so, you know, we wanted to do this sort of in your honor. And one of the other things to everyone else who's listening is Nick actually reached out to Roger Avery. So for anybody who doesn't know, Roger Avery is the filmmaker who made Killing Zoe. Uh, He actually shares a screenplay uh, Oscar with Quentin Tarantino for Pulp Fiction. Um, And so a lot of people don't realize that he wrote uh, one of the segments. I forget which segment it was, but either way, it was enough for him to be considered a co-writer, much to the chagrin of Quentin Tarantino. That's a separate story. Regardless, so Nick reached out to Roger Avery on (laughs) There's a lot of uh, things to the chagrin of Quentin Tarantino. Let's just be honest. (laughs) He's got a lot of chagrin in him. (laughs) (laughs) So he found out that Roger Avery was a big fan of this film, wanted to reach out to him, see if he had an opinion on it. And, you know, much like we all do, right, you, you send something to someone that's, you know, famous, got the blue check on Twitter, whatever it is, you don't really expect to hear back. Lo and behold, two weeks later, Roger, Roger excuse me, reached back out to Nick, and he left the following message that I'm going to read to you guys. Hi, Nick. Indeed, The Beast of War is freaking fantastic. I saw the film with Quentin Tarantino in Westwood, California on opening weekend, and no one was there. We had the theater to ourselves. The owner said it was in the theater for one day, just for awards qualification. Talk about suppressing a film for reasons of political agenda. Same thing happened with Idiocracy. Too intelligent for its own good. I find the film transcendental, as well as a fantastic action film. That's just super cool, Ryan. I don't think I've ever had a filmmaker, you know, spend that much time with me. Besides my infamous Spike Lee Twitter beef. (laughs) The infamous Spike Lee Twitter beef. I mean... Also, I've never had a fan spend so much time with me. So thanks, Nick, for reaching right? out. Appreciate you uh, for for Definitely. not only sharing a movie that we need to add to our list, which we just skipped right over the list and went right to it. You know, that's kind of the uh, travails of our uh, little system that we have set up here, unfortunately, is that uh, these there are so many good films on this list that I'm now stuck right. not watching and I want to really bad, but they're on our list. And I'm like, well... The second I watch it, now we've got to take it off the list, and uh, so this is one. Yeah, that we it's going to be the film we pull next week, you know, invariably. Right. Yeah, yeah. So we didn't want to let this get lost in the shuffle and never get chosen. So uh, we just went right to it in the off season and dedicated a whole ass episode right to you, Nick. So thanks very much for reaching out uh, and not only giving us the movie, but a little backstory as well. I thought that was really nice. So um, yeah, 
Roger Avery, if you're listening, As- shout out to you too, buddy. Thanks for the... Uh- <laughs> <laughs> we know you're a big fan of the show, Raj. Hit us up, buddy. Apparently that guy just uh, answers for- <laughs> stuff, so I'm going to go ahead and shoot my shot. Work for Nick. <laughs> Might as well, right? Super Might cool. as well. And then for anybody else who's listening, feel free to reach out to us just the way Nick did. You know, we'd love to hear your recommendations. Can't promise we're going to give you a whole ass episode, but he was the first to do so, and we wanted to reward him with that. So uh, once again, Nick, uh, to Ryan's point, thanks a lot. And to everyone else, feel free to reach out to us on either Instagram or Twitter at Esoterica Cinema or esotericacinema at gmail.com. Let us know the films you want us to look at. Even if we can't do a episode dedicated to it, we can consider it to put on the master list for our next season. We've already locked down season three, but we can always entertain it for season four. And again, we just we, we love to hear about movies that we hadn't heard of before. And this was absolutely one of them. And I'm really glad that uh, old old boy Nick got to us because Ryan, uh, spoiler alert, I actually really enjoyed this film. I enjoyed this film actually more than I thought I was going to after Same. the first kind of handful of minutes. Um, it definitely, you know, it's got that it's got that sort of it's so funny because there's certain there's certain eras of film that just have a feeling unto themselves. And I don't think it's any one aspect. I think it's sort of the combination of the acting style at the time, the cinematography style at the time, the score style at the time. And this definitely had that sort of like late eighties, early nineties sort of thriller vibe. You know, we saw it in a lot of like, uh, mainstream thrillers and sort of, you know, some of those street gang thrillers and such. And uh, almost a little bit not unlike that Michael Mann vibe that we've sort of talked about before. Sure, so, uh, but sure. It, you but know, better than the up, keep, though. This was better than the keep. 100 percent. Yeah. 100%. Not that Michael so, Mann vibe. <laughs> and so it was like, OK, well, this 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 can go sort of like late night cable vibes. Let's see what happens. And it didn't go there. It actually ended up being a really solid film. Um, I loved the 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 way that it sort of looked at both sides and then sort of brought it together. Yeah. Uh, had a little bit of, uh, of Woody Allen vibes in that in that regards. Um, crimes and misdemeanors that is you know sort of two separate storylines coming together at the end and that was kind of cool the way they pulled that off so Ryan I'll tell you what let's just go ahead and uh, we can actually go ahead and 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 get into this if you give me a good place for us to start well before we do I, I do want to just chime in what, real, <laughs> real quick I was waiting for it and it wasn't there <laughs> well you weren't giving me a space you just kept talking and I just kept ah, listening I do that. so uh, yeah I do that well yeah I mean no, that's no, no, why ahead. we started this show um you know, you talked about the era of films and something that I wanted to harp on really quick while we're on the topic is uh, this movie w- was from 1988. And so I started looking uh, because you're right. This does kind of have that late 80s vibe to it. Um, it also kind of felt like a uh, bit of a smaller version of Three Kings uh, in a way, too. Um, just in the I thought that, setting. too. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, which I do believe is on our list, if I'm not mistaken, because I haven't it seen that movie in is. a bazillion years. So in 1988, dude, that movie, that year was huge for films. Um, I started going down the list. I just Googled, you know, top films of 1988. You're looking at films like Rain Man, Beetlejuice, Stand and Deliver, Grave of Fireflies, which we covered here on the show with our homies. Um, who framed Roger Rabbit coming to America. Good morning, Vietnam, big die hard twins, fish called Wanda willow land before time. They live on and on and on. I think Eddie Murphy's (laughs) raw came out in 1980. So yeah, this is a, a banana pants, crazy year for movies. And, um, 
So I could see where this one would get lost in the shuffle with uh, all these releases coming out that year. You know, you drop something out for awards consideration. Good fucking luck, dude. You're going up against Rain Man and Good Morning <laughs> Vietnam and Coming to America and like on and on, but uh, Stand and Deliver. So, um, yeah, it, it's unfortunate that this one kind of fell through the cracks, but uh, I'm glad that we caught back up with it because I really did enjoy this film. With that said, Jason, we can go ahead and start this discussion. At the beginning! Yes! I was waiting so much! Uh, it's like a shot of heroin straight into the veins, it is. <laughs> it's been a while. It's been a while. Good to be back with <laughs> you, buddy. Been, We've been I doing know. these short-form content things and uh, flying solo on our own, so uh, it's good to be back with you on the show. Felt good to say I as much agree. as it was good to hear. <laughs> Excellent. So, when we start the film, we actually are treated to a quote from one Mr. Uh, Rudyard Kipling before did not the film see starts proper. <laughs> Neither did I. It goes as follows. When you're wounded and left on Afghanistan's planes and the women come out to cut up your remains, just roll to your rifle and blow out your brains and go to your God like a soldier. Some inspirational stuff there from the guy who wrote the Jungle Book. <laughs> right. What the fuck? <laughs> Yeah, so I I did look this dude up because I was like, that's not the Mowgli I know. But uh, yeah, he was I apparently raised in British India, uh, born and raised. So he's got something to say about uh, empires and, and what they can do to uh, Eastern countries. So even Middle Eastern countries. So, uh, yeah, I guess that was a pretty solid take. It was a powerful quote and it held true. Uh, kind of a bit of a foreshadowing to where this movie takes us at the very end. Yeah, 100%. So when the film starts proper, we fade in on a picturesque wide shot of a desert landscape at daybreak. All is still at magic hour as a muted pink sky hangs over shadowed sands. And then we get a couple more shots of the desert as superimposed credits cycle through before we see glimpses of a small village that exists within the plains. Now, aside from simply existing, we see the townspeople polishing guns, uncertain of exactly the reason, but possibly in preparation of war. Now, Ryan, this kind of turns out to be true, where the village is quickly airbombed and a number of tanks roll in. The village puts up a fight, but it really doesn't make much of a dent. We soon learn that it's 1981 and it's the second year of a Russian invasion. Now, <laughs> real quick, by the way, before we even continue, OK, I feel like we I just I have to get out of the way. Like, it's so funny to think about in 2021 the way that films used to be with regards to the way ethnicities were represented. <laughs> right. And so often throughout this movie, I had to be like, right, right. They're Russian, not American, because they didn't <laughs> even right. bother to have them fake doing accents. Like there are zero accents on any of the Russian soldiers. Nope. All sound American as shit. They're talking like we're talking right now. <laughs> exactly, dude. It's uh, it's Jason Patrick. Who, and it actually took me a, a while. I didn't recognize that him for a, a couple scenes, actually. Lost Boys um, era, Jason Patrick. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and and as well as a couple character actors that you would you'll recognize, but like not sure where like that Kaminsky guy. I even looked up his credits after the fact and it was like I recognized a crap ton of those movies, but could not picture any Same. of his characters. Same. But I know I've seen his face many, many times before. It's a very recognizable face. 
Um, but yeah, all that to say that like there is an element where I think we're talking about Stephen Bauer. Is that correct? N- or Don no, Harvey? I think Stephen. Ba- I think Stephen Bauer played the Afghani guy that ends up bonding with Jason Patrick. No, who's the other guy you said? No, the Afghani guy that bond, uh, bonds with Jason Patrick is uh, Eric Avari, who was in The Mummy and a bunch of other shit. He was another dude that I was like, oh, that no guy's been in everything. That's the same guy. Yep. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Yeah. So you got Don Harvey, you got Stephen Bauer, you got Stephen Baldwin, who's th- immediately th- recognizable. Can't. Uh... Yeah. Even though he doesn't say much the entire movie. No, I think it's Harvey. I think it's okay. that guy. Yep. Don Harvey Kaminsky. Yep. Yeah. 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 So again, so you're going to recognize a lot of these people, but you're not really going to know where you recognize them from. They're just going to kind of have a familiar face. At least that was my experience. But again, you know, you, you're, you're going to have to just accept right off the bat. Like, okay, they're not doing Russian accents. They're not trying. Let's, you know, if that's going to get in the way of your enjoyment of the film, which honestly I thought it would for me more. I, I honestly thought I would, like, I didn't think I would be able to just kind of accept it other than just, like I said, having to go back and be like, oh, right. Yeah, they're Russians anyways. But yep. it really didn't ultimately break. Like, I'm not going to knock any stars off the film for that. If it's any consolation, I don't think the uh, Afghanis were uh, of Afghan ethnicity either. I think it's I, just kind of a mishmash of 80s American goodness. No, I. Yeah, I think this is I think we're going back to the time period where just white people played everything. Yeah, the way it was. Yeah. <laughs> like the Native American with the single tear uh, seeing trash on the side of the road. You know, the, the PSA famous. Right. Movie. That wasn't Native American at all. That that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. Um, so, yeah. So anyways, getting back to the film, we do have, you know, the, the tanks but it that- was well acted. Yeah, no, it was great. Yeah, I thought everyone. I mean, it's was worth great. mentioning. Like, it doesn't suck. You know, they they all acted their ass off. Everything you know played out really well. I, I don't think uh, the movie. I, I agree with you. I don't think it suffered for it at all. Yeah, no, they they did act well. They just didn't act Russian. Right. That's it. So correct. You just have to know that going in. But we are introduced to them after that initial scene where they sort of end up invading alongside a lot of the other Russian soldiers and. They, they we're we're kind of we're thrown right into it with that sort of opening scene with that one Afghani soldier where the Russians come in, they capture this guy and they force him to lie down before the tank and have his foot like, you know, upright right Oof. in front of the tank chains and the Oof. wheels, so to speak. I had to look away. And then the yeah, the the commander Daskal, who right off the bat show in his colors or, orders the Koverchenko guy to run him over, who resists, but ultimately obliges right mm-hmm. and you know that's going to set up the beginning of the arc for Koverchenko who's obviously going to change his ways and uh, Commander Descal played by a guy named George Zunza by the way uh, strong character actor uh, it's going to set up that he's going to have his kind of like what I'd call a Colonel Kurtz sort of arc you know sort of going mad with power and just doubling and tripling down on his worst prejudices along the way and, you know, sacrificing his men or putting them in these unwinnable situations because of his own dogmatic principles, you know? Yep. Absolutely. So yeah. They're taking, they're taking now, over a village and, uh, you know, I, I believe that guy that gets run over is currently the Taj or, or the Khan rather. Um, uh, yes. because I believe that as we move forward in the plot, we realize that, uh, with him gone, then that leads uh, Taj, the Taj character, to now be the Khan. Is that correct? Yeah. So they take yes, over the yeah, Russians, yeah, take over correct. this town. And um, 
They kill the con, the current con, and then as they roll out uh, after taking over and killing the con uh, of the, you know, it's basically a tribal situation. And I'm not going to, uh, you know, take over or commandeer the conversation too much right now. But I will say I did I did a little bit of research and a bit of a deep dive on exactly what was going on politically with why the Russians were in Afghanistan. Uh, in the first place, okay. why? Um, because I was curious about the parallels of both our American Afghani uh, invasion and, and occupation, as well as um, just uh, also the parallels of what's going on. I mean, let's be frank and get right into it. You know, we're, we're recording this. It's so secret. We record these things a little bit in advance. And currently uh, we're dealing with the Russian occupation of the Ukraine. So um, there's yeah. a lot of parallels that could be made. I mean, obviously, that was on my mind and on my heart when I was watching this uh, lent itself well sure. to uh, because you're seeing tanks, you know, lost there as well and, and people being stranded. So there's a lot of direct parallels to uh, maybe, you know, what could be going on there. So um, anyway, all that to say uh, everything, uh, you know, at this time was very tribal and you're having a bit of a civil war that's prop, uh, propped up by the Soviet Union that turns into a proxy war. Uh, because Americans and the West were funding the rebels that were trying to overthrow the Soviet propped up government uh, of Afghanistan. Mm. So uh, mm. all that said, um, you know, th these tribesmen that are trying to uh, that are the rebels more or less funded by the West are um, trying to overthrow the Soviets who are there uh to keep their government in place to propel communism because that was, we're still in the cold war era here. So uh, anyways, they roll out and then our little tribe people get together, realize that their con has died. Now Taj is the new con. And they're like, what do we do? My reason for commandeering this conversation is what I didn't get. And maybe you're about to get to it, but I at least wanted to let you know, I didn't really quite okay. understand when, the tank crew that that kills the con rolls them over with Jason Patrick in the in the clan. Um, when mm -hmm. did they get lost? Because immediately the next scene we cut to them, they're on their own driving towards a folk yeah. fork in the road. But while they were in that town or village, they had homies, right? They were, I believe, with other people, if I'm not mistaken, other Soviet soldiers and other tanks. I don't think they were there alone, were they? Did I miss no, that? no, not at all. I mean, there was, yeah, they were. It was a whole, you know, battalion or or whatever right. the exact terminology would be. But yeah, no, and and they don't, you know, it's it's kind of a blink and you miss it, or maybe that's not even fair to say. Yeah, they do kind of just time travel a little bit. Like they jump ahead to pretty much as soon as that war is over, and it is kind of a nice little action sequence. As soon as that's over, they pretty much jump to like everybody leaves, and then yeah, right away it's like. We like we don't really see the tank stray from the pack. Okay. We just kind of understand that they did. And honestly, as I'm saying it out loud, that was probably well, I don't know cuz they I was going to say it's probably a budgetary reason, but then, you know, they were able to get those shots of the for the opening scene, so It's the only weak point I could see in the plot. Uh was just I, because yeah. um, you know, I I felt like I blinked and I missed it. I was like, whoa, what happened? Like, why'd they yeah. get separated from... I thought something would... There would be a catalyst or something because obviously I knew the plot of the film uh, or the synopsis of the film going in, but uh, I, I just was waiting for that moment to uh, kind of motivate their isolation. But uh, I did not catch that. Uh, but yeah, that's so neither here nor there. They're alone. Moving on. <laughs> yeah, so we do have because we do have all of the the tanks and the Russian soldiers leaving the village, right? Which is why 
you know, the, the, the Afghan family is able to come back and see the wreckage and how, you know, some of their family members were killed and such and the grieving process. And to your point, that's yes. when Taj claims uh, Khan and all of that. So, you know, like the, the Russians have left at that point for them to be able to have those moments. And I think it's just assumed that like when they left that, yeah, you know, like like a little duckling, the tank got lost and strayed from the path and now it's just kind of lost on its own. So, In all fairness, as the movie now, moves on, they, they do a pretty good job of showcasing all these uh, regions are very confusing and there's one way in one way out. You know, you make a wrong turn at Albuquerque in Afghanistan and you're fucked. Like, and you know, that was a, a, from what I understand, a lot of the problems anyone's ever had trying to occupy uh, Afghanistan is, uh, you know, they, their home turf is no joke. It's not, uh, it's pretty ragged, uh, rugged terrain. Um, so that's what yeah. these people were up against. So now we see the commander of the the tank battalion, so to speak, and they have a gentleman on their crew. He's a he's like he's like a Russian guy, but he is also like Muslim or something like that. Uh, we see him praying to Allah. He seems to practice Islam, and so right off the bat, this Daskal character is is hugely suspicious of them, and we see it where. They 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 basically tell us that they're lost, right? They don't show us that they're lost. They tell us that they're lost because right after that scene, we jump to it and they're alone looking at the map and they're like, what happened? And it's like, I don't know. I think we must have made a left turn at Albuquerque, blah, blah, blah. And then he's like, you got us lost. Why don't you know where you are? Get the hell out of here. You're demoted. And then he turns to Kovarchenko, Descal that is, and he's like, hey, you, you're you're promoted. You're now, you know, in charge of navigation or whatever. Um, and that would be like, so the first sort of minor prejudicial sort of thing that we see from him that's only going to obviously escalate and get uh, worse and more dramatic over the course of the movie. But from there, we also get where uh, a moment where uh, the Afghan soldiers are talking about who's they're arguing over who's going to get the RPG and the, and the Khan has a cousin and you can tell he's sort of very like arrogant and he says that he's going to be the one to fire off the RPG and after talking all this big game he misfires at the Russians they see that they're being attacked the Russians do by the uh, Afghani soldiers and so they bail now Ryan the reason I bring this up is because it sets up a very sort of interesting structure and trajectory that we don't really see in a lot of films where most films are going to be content to take one side or the other and just sort of stay within that character's purview this film is more of a, a cat and mouse where it, it has us you know sympathize with both the cat and the mouse at the same time it shows us both sides it shows us the motivations equally for both characters correct um and how you know there's rights and wrongs on both sides but ultimately both sides are in pursuit of their own side's goals and so you know there's no real true heroes or villains and then of course the relationship aspect down the road as well what did you think about this structure I loved it. I thought that, um, you know, you see a lot of this from an American standpoint, um, you know, from uh, Vietnam War or, you know, different World War movies uh, from an American stance, just in the sense of nationalism versus humanitarianism and, and the dangers of just sure. following orders, um, because oftentimes those orders trickle down from people that are looking at, you know, at war from as a game of risk, more or less. And, and it's just a matter yeah. of we saw that explored in the uh, in our first season from uh, Paths of Glory. They, Paths they of Glory is a great example. Even Born on the Fourth of July uh, covered some of that as well. Yeah. Just uh, the war is hell element and how um, sometimes soldiers can be discarded as pawns and used for the greater good of the nation. 
that's at war and so forth. So um, war is hell, buddy, and it's not a it's not a game of yeah. feel goods. And uh, this did a pretty good job of demonstrating that uh, from both sides, instead of just coming at it from a nationalist John Wayne pull your boots up and go to war. We're fighting for the good guys kind of way, you know, um, sometimes, yeah. uh, you know, war and conquest is so much more complicated and blurrier than that. And, um, you know, when you get down to ground level and, and you're dealing with the humanity of war and, uh, you know, oftentimes these soldiers are kids, you know, or, or young men that are, are sent off to be fodder, uh, for the, what, what is deemed as the greater good. And um, you could definitely look at both sides here. You know, our uh, Kovarchenko character, played by Jason Patrick, kind of exudes the humanity of the Soviet side uh, and questioning sure. his orders a little bit and trying to make terms uh, or make a, a sense of the you know situation he's been put in, uh, especially after... Yeah, bring civility to an uncivil situation, Correct. so to speak. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of conscience, uh, you know, that, that gets applied. And then from the other side as well, because you've got, like you said, the arrogant cousin of the Taj, or of the Khan, rather, of Taj. And uh, and you can tell he's arrogant. Uh, how, Jason? Because he won't take his sunglasses off. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I thought that was so cool, dude. That was like some Top Gun shit. That guy had some mirrored sunglasses that were glued to his face like a fucking action figure. <laughs> <laughs> Tough guy. Yeah, no, there's like there's two or three hallmarks, man. It's the sunglasses. It's the uh, the shit eating grin is a huge part of that, right? Oh yeah, uh, and then the and then the uh, inability to uh, ever accept responsibility or you know like just the way that he like has one rocket and he screws it up and he's like, eh, you know what you gonna do? Allah, yeah, ah, that was just a lie. Allah didn't want us to have that anyway, you know. Eh, moving on. <laughs> yeah, always passing the buck, that guy. Yeah. Hey, we've all got so family members like that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, can re- I can relate, Taj, if you're out there listening. <laughs> <laughs> so after that, uh, again, you know, we're starting to split off. We've got equal time with the Russians and the Afghanis. The Afghanis find a water hole, which obviously they've been looking for one. And the, one of the gentlemen runs up, you know, submerges his whole head, drinks greedily, and very soon dies. Uh, the other soldiers look around. They see a poison canister from the Russians off in a shrubbery somewhere. And uh, obviously, this is a poison watering hole that they don't have access to, which is a nice uh, foreshadow that's going to come back a little bit later towards the end. And from there, uh, the the tank, the Russians are trying to basically fire at the Afghani troops and the rocket, quote unquote, misfires. And then because of that, it's like, you know, hugely dangerous. It might explode inside the tank. So all of the soldiers like jump out, uh, run and hide, wait for it to explode. And then when it doesn't, (laughs) of course, who's going to get uh, sent out? But uh, old boy Samad, right, from uh, Daskal. And he's like, hey, hey, go. uh, Why don't you go ahead and check and make sure that uh, everything's okay out there? Obviously would not uh, miss if he were to explode and is probably actively hoping that that happens to him. He ends up having him plant a booby trap on a missile on the ground before they leave, where he just sort of puts like a grenade behind it because he knows that the Afghanis are uh, like looking for weapons and scraps and whatever they can get their hands on. Right. So obviously a whole ass missile is going to be pretty enticing. Puts a grenade back there and it works. 
the the Afghani show up later. They're uh, they see it there. They go to retrieve it. Boom, explodes. Now, one of the things Ryan that I thought was interesting as well is the way that everything was shot. There was a lot of people in here. And, you know, it's a but even given that it's a fairly personal story where, you know, you've got these four or five guys on one side, same for the other. But everything is shot very wide. As I was watching the film, I noticed that there were very, very few close ups. Agree. Even down to like when even when we were like inside the tank and there was minimal room, they still chose to shot in like, you know, medium wide profiles uh, as much as possible. And I just thought it was kind of an interesting way to shoot this film did that did that uh, jump out of you at all yeah because you would think the uh you know there's two trains of thought on this number one you would you would go wide to show the desolate nature of what was going on and yeah the isolation all the desert shots and establishing shots yeah, and things yeah. Like that. when the, i mean when there's nothing out there and you could show the isolation you know and and the situation it kind of just Shows the situation these soldiers were in uh, and how lost and fucked they all were on both sides. You know, just um, it really kind of plants them as being in another world, another land, you know, versus when you're close up, you kind of lose some of that because now it becomes personal. Sure. Um, But then as you go wide all the time, to your point, the opposite effect happens. And now it's not a personal war because everything that's happening is happening from a distance and um, in these big wide shots and... uh, you know, uh, at, at best you get, might get, um, you know, a couple of over the shoulders with the tank in the background and stuff like that. But yeah, uh, yeah a lot of group shots, a lot of wide shots. Sometimes that gets done for budgetary purposes. Um, I think we talked about some of that on the episode covering duel as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes when you're on a budget and you got to move fast, let's just shoot a whole ass scene, you know, uh, and not get a lot of coverage. And, um, you know, this did have a budget of eight million, um, which for what they gave us and the military operations and the tanks and the helicopters and all of the things that come in towards the end, I think they did a great job for eight million. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the other interesting things as well is even though even though you're not getting a lot of close ups, what you are getting is a lot of like multiple shots, two shots and three shots. Right. Yeah. And I think that that also lends itself to just sort of because, you know, when you say those things out loud, it's like, okay, it's detached, you know, wide shots, but it's also group shots. And I feel like that very much reflects the experience of the soldiers within this story, right, where, you know, they're in the middle of this vast desert. You know, it's very desolate. And so you want to capture that. But they're also with these other men. Right. And they're they're trapped there with them and pretty much like relying on each other to survive. And so even like, you know, some of the moments like with Jason Patrick later where again, you know, you'd think that like you'd go in for like a close up for his big emotional moment. They kind of do like a sort of like a split OTS two shot, right? Where they kind of have them like look almost towards camera on the left side of the frame. And then you see like the other two soldiers in the background on the right, right hand of right. the frame. So you see everyone, but you are sort of able to still capture more of Jason Patrick's emotions because he is emoting stronger. So I thought the film did a really good job of you know of, of of straddling that line you know because it also didn't feel like a you know Denis Villeneuve project like it didn't it didn't have that you know great escape everything's in these super giant epic it didn't feel like a David Lean epic right Correct. it did feel Correct. kind of personal even though it was shot in an attached fashion it was very interesting 
Yeah, uh, you know, it's and that's why I think it's budget because you know it wasn't so big and sweeping like you said, like a David Lean kind of uh, style. Uh, one one thing I will add to this, you know, and you could kind of chime in or we could move on, but um, uh, this was shot by a guy named Douglas uh, Milsom, I believe that's how you say his name. Uh, an English cinematographer okay. who was a uh, former camera operator for John Alcott, who we've talked before uh, as being Stanley Kubrick's DP, um, who shot A Clockwork mm-hmm. Orange and Barry Lyndon and The Shining and so on and so forth. So uh, when uh, Alcott kicked the bucket, Milsom stepped in and shot uh, uh, Full Metal Jacket. And he was a cinematographer for Full oh, wow. Metal Jacket uh, and then went on uh, with Kevin Reynolds. Uh, to go shoot things like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and uh, I believe Waterworld and a couple other things. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this guy's got chops. It's not for lack of skill. Um, Decisions that were made were either made for intentional emotional purposes, like what we're discussing, or budgetary concerns, uh, or some split of the two. Yeah, absolutely. But but this guy's, you know... uh, Douglas Milsom uh, has got chops, man. He, you know, you study under Kubrick and Alcott. I mean, that's that's big time shit. And he was a camera operator. <laughs> that's all you need, man. That's he, that's chops right yeah, there, dude. Right? Yeah. I mean, because <laughs> Kubrick was no slouch with the camera. I, I assume uh, he, you know, he yeah. was around a, a thing or two around that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, yeah, you could argue he made one or two solid films. I guess maybe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in case anyone listening doesn't know, he's my favorite filmmaker of all time, and that is absolutely in jest. So do not come at me. Don't at me, as the kids say. <laughs> and I do think it's really funny in the film after that where we get this scene where, like, the tank doesn't stop. Like, it doesn't have brakes, and it's revealed that, like, that Kaminsky guy used the brake, stole the brake fluid to make like homespun soldiers moonshine out of. He's like, oh, yeah, that's great. You know, uh, just throw a few raisins and uh, some fruit in there and you let it sit there overnight and uh, it's got a nice little kick the next day. (laughs) uh, (laughs) What could go wrong? Right. And then Kovarchenko's going to write him up and Daskal's like, ah, he's our best gunner. Don't write him up. Blah, blah, blah. This and that. And uh, I think Kovarchenko does end up or no, he ends up writing him up, but like he lets Daskal pull the page out of his journal or something like that. And then after that, there was so I wasn't 100 percent sure what I was doing because it, it cuts to where it's later at night. It's the scene where uh, they, they, you know, it's dark and the tank rolls up and they they're they're being encircled. And so the tank has this like ring of fire that it ends up spewing to make like a. Yeah, just like a like a ring of fire around itself, and like, what the hell was that, Ryan? Do do can all tanks do that? I think it had a flamethrower on it. Yeah, uh, apparently did it have a flame? Because we never ever see that after the fact. But no, and it wasn't because here's the thing: it wasn't a flamethrower because it wasn't shooting like actual flames. Like it wasn't it wasn't shooting gas flames. It was like napalm or something because. It was spitting it out in a circle to where the substance was hitting the ground and then catching fire, right? Like, it was still on fire as it was spewing out, but a flamethrower, like, the moment you take your your finger off the trigger, like, it's not leaving a residue that's hitting the ground and, and still on fire, right? This was, like, spewing, like, a magma or something, which maybe that's napalm. I'm not 100% familiar I'm not with certain. a lot of military yeah. weaponry. I, I mean, I... I did a decent amount of research on the Russian uh, skirmish and occupation of Afghanistan, but uh, I've, I stopped short of their artillery and, and, and tank uh, 
<laughs> education. I mean, it I looks cool as shit. It's it's the middle no, of the totally night, good. and it's just because it was at night. Tank too. spewing a fucking ring of fire in a giant circle. Like it looked great. I was just like. Again, I didn't know what the hell it was. Because, you know, obviously they're in the middle of the Afghani desert uh, or whatever, in the middle of nowhere. And so there's no natural light source whatsoever. Spare the stars and moon, which it was very, it was shot very dark. And so what the flame uh, then becomes is your only light source to to pierce the darkness. Um, So it was a really cool shot because you've got this tank. Uh, supposedly surrounded uh, by Afghani soldiers at the time. We find out very shortly that's not the case, but uh, it starts, the turret starts to spin around and they're just firing uh, uh, on all angles. They're shooting their, uh, you know, chain guns or whatever, you know, they got their uh, artillery going off and the flamethrower, which then, you know, lights up the night sky. And to your point, Jason, you're right. The the flame stays on the ground uh, and stays burning in a circle around the tank, which if nothing else looks fucking cool. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and then after you know Daskal wants to know what's going on who's he going to send out there to uh, go investigate Samad of oh course boy. it's going to be Samad yep. and it uh, turns out that uh, the whole thing were some deer just a, yep. a pack they of deer, surrounded by deer that they overreacted to and while he's outside uh, he actually has his first like we see him super cross the line where he orders Kovarchenko to shoot him and thankfully, Kovarchenko has a uh, conscience, and he rejects the order. Now, from there, they do stop at a water hole where, again, Daskal orders Samad uh, shot, refused. So Daskal uh, takes it upon himself to just go ahead and fire on him and shoot him in the middle of the water. It was uh, it was very surprising. I didn't. I mean, I figured they were going to set this up to where it was going to kind of go over the course of the whole movie. So when they straight off him halfway through, I was like, oh, wow, that was that was surprising. Did you see that coming or did it catch you? As well? I did not. But I, I thought it did a great job of raising the stakes because, yeah. you know, that was to me one of the noticeable actors that we talked about that I could place a face uh, with the name. And I knew that guy. So, you know, obviously the the Hollywood thing is to not kill off your actors in the first act. But uh, the fact that they just went ahead and off to that dude uh, so quickly and violently like that without remorse really kind of showed where we were at with these characters in the moment and that anything could happen. Uh, any of these characters were at risk. Um, maybe possibly barring Jason Patrick because we knew he had a bigger role to play, you know, with the synopsis and so forth. But uh, outside sure. of that, anything's fair game in war is hell. So here we go. Um, and uh, that kind of escalates as we move forward out of the first act into the second act, which I think you could kind of describe this as being, you know, right around that moment. I mean, I mean, we're pretty far along, dude. We're probably in the middle of the second act about when this happens, because what happens is this is where Descal kind of finally has his like, like I said, his call it his Colonel Kurtz moment where he kind of crosses the line, you know, point of no return. So for Descal, this is kind of where he has his like Colonel Kurtz moment, right? Sort of the point of no return. And because in addition to killing Samad, he also orders Kovarchenko to be left for dead. Right. And basically has Kaminsky or whoever set up a booby trap of a grenade behind his own head. And he's going to be, you know, threatened by buzzers and, you know, dogs later. And while this is going on, we also see the Afghan women and they end up finding Uncle Akbar, who got injured somewhere along the way. And they're like, hey, can we help? We have these. And they like show a bunch of grenades that they were able to get their hands on. And, and C4. I guess. It, yeah. 
Yeah, and I guess it must be because they're women and tradition and cultural values and all of that and the time period that, like, he kind of says thanks but no thanks, right? Like, if someone's like, hey, I got a bunch of grenades to toss to your enemy, I'd be like, cool, come along, friend. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I thought the same thing. At least I'm surprised they didn't at least take the armaments. Um, But, again, Uh, so much plant and payoff going on in the first and second acts of this film. And it almost everything that I could uh, see as foreshadowing, almost all of it gets resolved, which is rare for a film. I was so impressed with the amount of plant and payoff that was going on in this movie. And, uh, and to see each and everything start, like as you start to round out of the second act and get into the third, it just starts to fall like dominoes. I'm like, dude, by the yeah. numbers, dude, this guy just fucking set himself up so sharp as a screenwriter and just started knocking these things down. And I love it. <laughs> Good on you, buddy. But yeah, I mean, uh, to what we were saying before, I, I kind of use um, this moment right here where Kovachenko gets left behind. That's to me where we start to get into sec- the second act. Um, and then the uh, Mujahideen find him and he kind of becomes a part of their deal. And we in his character arc starts to shift. Uh, so you got the first act where you've got the Russians in the tank being stranded and you've got the, uh, Afghan rebels, uh, figuring their shit out and, uh, kind of going about things haphazardly. And then once Kovachenko leaves, now we've got our movie. Like now we're moving forward with Kovachenko being found by the Afghanis and, uh, things just kind of roll out from there. Huh. That's interesting. So I would actually, uh, I would actually probably argue that point with you a little bit. And suggest that maybe it's actually our midpoint twist of Act Two. Oh, okay. So, because so for so I would say that right. So Act One ends with our Act One climax, which sort of sets the story in motion. Right now, I would say that what this film does that's uh, outside of tr- of norm is it. I think it has a really short first act. I would say that like when the tank gets lost is probably towards the end of Act One, beginning of Act Two. Okay. Uh, that's only like well, like our third or fourth scene or something like that, sure. right? And then I think that it's setting up this tank trying to get back home. That's really like the bulk, you know, the Russian tank trying to get back home. Uh, and that's, you know, the the sort of uh, MacGuffin, if you will, or, you know, the, 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 the central plot that's driving the story through. So that when they get to the chasm... And they have to turn back and go around. That would be like the end of Act 2, beginning of Act 3. And so I think that that kind of puts this as a midpoint twist in Act 2 and then gives us a different angle and subplot with him while still maintaining the uh, original arc. That's kind of what I would argue. That's fair. I'll go along with that. And to your point... Cool. And then to your point, though, like with regards to what you're talking about with plan payoff, like, yeah, it's I mean, that's exactly what this film does so, so well. And we see that again right here in the next scene where when Kovarchenko is about to be attacked by dogs, that's when he's found by the Afghanis. And, you know, they're going to basically enact revenge. Uh, but he actually uh, claims Nana Waiti, something like that. Nana Waiti, I think, is how they pronounce it now. This was actually uh, set up earlier that we didn't reference where he's talking to Samad and Samad is explaining the Islamic religion and mentions that among these other central tenets of their beliefs is this notion of Nanawaiti. Again, I might be butchering butchering that. The important thing is that basically if an enemy or whomsoever comes to you and and asks for mercy, 
regardless of the severity of their transgression against you, you have to say yes and treat them with respect and dignity and not kill them, even if they killed your brother or something like that, right? Correct. And so that's, you know, learning that earlier allows him to get out of this situation here by claiming it and also puts them in position to develop the relationship. And I thought that the next scene was really, really strong. And that's where the Khan and the Afghanis take Kovarchenko back to like the cave and have him fix the RPG, right? Because it doesn't work anymore. And so when he's able to do so, they're basically like, hey, you know, since uh, since you got left for dead by your buddies there, we were thinking, uh, you know, you should be the one to go ahead and fire off the RPG at them, you know, and uh, and just the way that they're having, you know, the communication without speaking each other's language. It was a strong scene. I liked it. No, no, definitely. I agree. Yeah. And it was a very sort of organic and believable relationship that they developed. Like I said, you know, being double crossed by your commanding officer and left for dead. OK, yeah, I'll buy that. Uh, You know, he's. He's it allows what do I want to say it allows us to sympathize with him for defecting. Right. Because really, you know, the if you were going to say that, like the film is primarily one side or the other, like you would probably say it's the Russian story because it starts out with them and we kind of see most of it through their eyes, even though later uh, again, we're seeing a lot of it through the Afghani eyes. But it would be very easy to lose respect for a main character that ends up defecting against his own country and his own people, it would be really, really easy to lose your audience by doing that. So the way that they were able to do that, uh, you know, by again, introducing this notion of him being left for dead by his commanding officer, I thought was very strong as well. Now, moving forward again, we've got Descal becoming more and more unhinged and a Russian chopper actually arrives to save the men Uh, But the commander refuses to allow them to leave. And what's happened is that they are just about to get home. It's 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 super close. They can see it. But, oh, look, we didn't read the map correctly because it was burned off and realized that right in front of where we are is a giant chasm extending from one side to the other, which we cannot cross in this tank. And instead of just abandoning the tank and hopping in this chopper, old boy Daskal is going to order his men to stay in and uh, get this thing back home by going back exactly the way they came, which is uh, not unlike uh, the device they used in Mad Max Fury Road. Is it? Yeah, where they have them, like, go straight back through the way they came to get back to it because uh, the, you know, refuge, the tree of life or wherever it was going was was all rotted and shit. It wasn't oh, actually what they thought it right. was. that's right. That's right. Okay, yeah, that's yeah. fair. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I mean, it's a very don't don't abandon the ship kind of, uh, you know, we're going down with the ship kind of mentality, it seemed. And, uh, you know, uh, salvation was right there in front of them. And you could just see the uh, disappointment in the in the crew's face, uh, which I think at this point was we're down to what Don Bauer and Stephen Baldwin and. Uh, yeah, it's you know. just the it's just the two of them. Yeah, the Kaminsky and the Stephen Baldwin character who really doesn't say anything the entire time. If you if he like. It's definitely not a classic Stephen Baldwin performance. You barely know he's there. Yeah. And they're like, oh, look at, look at the handsome blonde guy. Cool. Yeah. I mean, 
maybe you heard him talk. And he's like, okay. <laughs> and then he's like redlining all his uh, lines through the script on set. <laughs> Hands him back a modified a couple of pages. <laughs> Gonna have to have a talk with Alec after this. Right. They have yeah. oversold his brother's talents. I mean, this predates Biodome. <laughs> and yeah, there's a lot... Uh, <laughs> a lot to maybe be desired. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> terrible. But anyways, yeah, you know, it, it was kind of a moment where, because up to this point, uh, Kovarchenko was the, um, uh, you know, the odd man out, so to speak, and in our uh, vehicle to see some kind of humanity in, in spite of these Soviets' lust and passion for nationalism and war and all of that. Uh, and then, you know, all of a sudden, uh, when they're denied their own safety and they're not the tough guys anymore, all of a sudden you start to see some of the layers of their own rigidity start to kind of flake away. And you see their humanity kind of start to shine through where up until now, uh, they were always on the side of their commander. And, um, you know, it was go Russia and, and, and you know, we're doing this. And so anytime Kovarchenko would... Uh, kind of fall out of line, you know, everybody would kind of look at each other and like, what is he thinking? But then now all of a sudden uh, their safety is being threatened. And I, I thought it was a nice, interesting turning point to inject a little more humanity at a time when that concept was starting to stall out because Kovarchenko had already gone along and fallen in rank with, uh, you know, the Afghani rebels. And so um, to kind of see the commander's uh, judgment questioned yet again uh, by these two that up until now just went rank and file along with whatever he said. I thought it was uh, just a nice emotional beat um, to kind of re-inject that concept once more uh, and kind of make it fresh again. Absolutely. And so now we've got sort of our third act. We're sort of beelining it towards the end. Uh, the tank is running hot. It's pretty much out of water. It doesn't have brake fluid. The soldier's trying to convince Daskal to just let it rest, but he's like, no, full speed ahead. We got this. There's a watering hole right up ahead. And sure enough, there is. But uh, again, plant and payoff from before foreshadowing. <laughs> it turns out this watering hole is also poisoned. We can tell because there's a canister and a bunch of dead bodies around that. And so they're pretty much fucked. And at that point, Kovarchenko and the Afghanis do find the tank and they attack. Uh, the Russians retaliate with literally all the missiles at their disposal. Daskal's totally unhinged. She orders them to fire every last one. And the tank is then able to escape through the pass. We've got Kovarchenko and the Khan chasing him on foot. They finally catch up to the tank. They've got, you know, the RPG all fixed. They've been waiting for their moment. And... Kovarchenko goes to fire it, and the rocket hits the tank, but instead of hitting the cab and the bulk of it, it ends up hitting the muzzle of the tank, which sort of shields the rest of it from the blow. (laughs) And they've only got the one (laughs) rocket. It was, you know, one and done. That's it, man. And, you know, we've got Kovarchenko, you know, very upset, you know, falling to his knees. We've got the Khan sort of arms raised to the sky like Allah why have you forsaken us type thing but then lo and behold some boulders explode tumble down on top of the tank and crush the tank and for a minute you know it's like what was that divine intervention no no it was just some crafty women that we saw earlier trying to help out with with old uncle Akbar and when he didn't take their help they took matters into their own hands and made this thing happen because at the end of the day women always know better don't they 
Hell hath no fury, J- Jason. Hell hath no fury. <laughs> like a woman scorned. Um, you know, uh, and I, I could only assume yet another plant and payoff. Uh, I just assumed they used the grenades in the C4 that they were holding uh, to blow yeah, up that uh, sure. mountainside and get the rocks to slide down. So, yeah, uh, so much foreshadowing. Every little nugget that they gave you <laughs> on the front end comes back around uh, to the back end. So, uh, yeah, hell hath no fury. Uh, and for the ultimate plant and payoff. Uh, going all the way back to the very first uh, opening shot of the whole entire film to that Rudyard Kipling uh, quote, uh, the women then come down to ravage uh, what is left of our commander and rip him apart, and he should have just shot himself in the head. Absolutely. Well, he did try. So he actually wanted to go down in a blaze of glory with the grenades. But then the Stephen Baldwin and Kaminsky characters like wrestle him. Oh, that's uh, right. That's right. Hands. Yep. And then they like force all of them out. And that's when, yeah, the, the women all run up and they they kill Descal. I think the I think the two younger ones still survive. I think they, they just did. kill Descal. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. So, they were let to uh, let to get. Uh, I think that well, I. Uh, you know, qu- dot, 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 question mark, because I think they were just sent packing out in the Afghani desert, gotcha. right? They were, yeah, uh, they may or may not have taken. survived. Yeah, all their shit was taken from them, um, anything worth a damn. And then I think they said, you can go. Good luck, hot shots. <laughs> I think the commander <laughs> if was If this left were a behind. Western, we would cut to them, like, buried in the ground with just their heads poking out, right? right. Like, two days later. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And then, uh, com- oh, oh boy, uh, Commander Descal was... Uh, Picked apart by the women uh, who were not as <laughs> not as uh, forgiving as the men, apparently. Yeah. So, you know, we've got this nice resolution between Khan and Kovarchenko. You know, things are going to be buddy-buddy with them. Khan ends up giving Kovarchenko this, you know, sort of ornate sword as a display of friendship. And uh, a Russian chopper then shows up. And uh, instead of sticking around and forming a nice long friendship that'll last till the end of time... Uh, Kovarchenko gives him a look and then runs for the helicopter. Uh, he does keep the sword and take it with him, but he ends up accepting an airlift and straps himself in and gets hauled out of there. And we are sort of left with a very ambiguous shot of him being flown over the desert plains with the con sort of looking up in, confu- in confusion, rather, really. And uh, and then the credits start rolling. So... Well, yeah, it was kind of sad. About the ending, Ryan, did you think the ambiguity worked, or did you want it a little more buttoned up, or how that worked? No, for you? I think I thought it worked fine. I thought uh, our antagonist was obviously Descal, got his comeuppance. Um, you know, the threat of the beast has been subdued. Uh, we had a bit of a character arc through point from uh, old boy Jason Patrick Kovachenko. And, um, yeah, I, I didn't think it needed to go on much, much further than that. I think it would have been equally ambiguous if he would have went with them because then what, you know, like, where does that leave him? Is he then adopted as a Soviet into this Mujahideen Afghani rebel society? And I mean, that opens up so many cans of worms. Just go back to where you belong. Uh, go back to where you once yeah. belong as the Beatles said, get back, get back to where you once belong. And, uh, I think that was all I needed. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I totally agree. So, uh, yeah, that is the beast or the beast of war, depending on where you are watching this. Ryan, let's go ahead and wrap up as we always do with three adjectives. What do you got? Um, you know, we kind of covered this. Uh, my first is balanced. Uh, you know, uh, you brought up right up to, uh, uh, front in the discussion. You know, this is a war from both sides film. And I thought they did a tremendous job of, 
giving equal time for the most part to both sides of this equation. It was a smaller film, but, um, you know, it felt bigger because you never were, you know, on either side for too long to where it started to feel claustrophobic. Mm -hmm. You were kind of back and forth and back and forth. It volleyed very well. So balanced, uh, also balling on a budget, um, for being $8 million in 1988, you know, you shit. I looked up, uh, even rain man cost 25 mil and I get it. You know, Tom Cruise, uh, Dustin Hoffman, but still sure. like Tom Cruise wasn't commanding 20 mil a picture back then. He was still a young upstart yeah. kid coming off a of top gun and, uh, you know, movies like that. So, um, yeah, uh, when you got rain man uh, with no helicopters or tanks costing 25 million, um, you know, just a box of toothpicks and a nice car, uh, this movie for eight mil, you get helicopters, tanks, explosions, a full on, you know, battle, uh, situation going on with rocket launchers. It felt big, bigger than it should have been. So balling on a budget did a great job for Kevin Reynolds. Also, it's his second fi- picture. Um, you know, this guy went on to go do Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and one of the largest films at the time, which was a huge disaster of a film, the water world. Uh, this guy swung for the fences and this was kind of a good, uh, kind of, um, uh, window into his future, so to speak, that, uh, this guy wanted to do bigger, bigger things. So, uh, and then eighties goodness, um, you know, we talked about this as well. (laughs) No surprises. It just kind of had that vibe, whether it's young guns, uh, as an eighties version of the Western or, you know, this is kind of an eighties version of, uh, you know, cold war. Um, I thought the uh, music lent itself very well to that. Uh, we didn't talk about this, but a guy named Mark Isham did the music, uh, for this film, this guy has done so much music and I'm not a huge conductor guy. I'll leave that to measuring the score podcast, but, uh, just a couple names real quick to throw out there. This guy's done everything from the conjuring one and two from our boy, James Wan. Uh, we got hot fuzz crash. Um, even going back to, uh, Miami vice, he did the music for Miami vice for Michael Mann, the TV series. Um, and yeah. he's still out there crushing cause he just did the score for, uh, Judas and the black Messiah. So, um, Oh, yeah. wow. Nuts. So this is kind of a uh, earlier film in his career. And um, yeah, I thought, you know, it did pretty well without seeming like overly 80s cheesy with heavy saxophone uh, inflections and stuff like that. I thought uh, it, you know, it it hit all the emotional beats and uh, did a good job. 80s goodness, balling on a budget and balanced. How about you, Jason? Right on, man. So first one is interesting. You know, it's not like a hugely emotional movie, um, but that's not to say that it's like disengaging as well. And I thought it just uh, it was one of those movies where I was always curious as to what was coming next. You know, I liked the moves that it made. I liked the plant and the payoff and everything that it did. It just always held my interest. I thought it was well paced. It kept moving along. It never really sort of slowed down. Uh, I never really like jumped up or down either. It was a very consistent pace through the entire time. You know, you didn't have it wasn't one of those movies where it has peaks and valleys. It kind of just it's a you know, it ramps up at the beginning and it just kind of stays there. And it's this nice, uh, you know, seven and a half sort of pace. So it's not the most intense thing you've ever seen, but it's by no means a drag either. Nice sweet spot right there and uniquely structured, as we mentioned earlier, just the whole way that uh, it starts off our midpoint twist, the relationship between Khan and Kovarchenko and the way that all the plant and payoffs work. Really, really interesting film all around. Interesting, well-paced, uniquely structured. For me, I'm going to go ahead and formalize a star rating of four and a quarter out of five. And that's actually 
Way higher than I expected, uh, just based on reading and walking into it blind and not really knowing anything. Um, no offense to Nick, you know, our uh, suggestion there, but uh, yeah, it was just something that wasn't on my radar. So I was like, oh, you know, there's there might be a reason for that. But no, it this is just one of those movies that for whatever reason, maybe maybe Roger Avery is right. Maybe it was just a came out at the wrong time in terms of its politics. Maybe there were other reasons at play, but yeah, totally solid film. Four and a quarter out of five stars. Ryan, what you got? Yeah, I mean, 1988, we're uh, still dealing in the Soviet Cold War era. Um, you know, Reagan was just coming out of office. Bush was going in. Uh, I think the uh, Berlin Wall uh, was just being torn down. Uh, Mr. Gorbachev tear down that wall. So I'm sure there were a lot of politics involved. But much like yourself, um, I just, you know, for me, I was looking at a film I'd never heard of on a budget of $8 million, uh, the biggest star was going to be Jason Patrick. And uh, more than anything else, it's directed by Kevin Reynolds, who went on to do Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, um, which, okay. And then Waterworld, which is highly problematic. So yeah, from the director of Waterworld comes a much cheaper film. It's like, oh boy, okay, <laughs> let's see how this goes. But I was shocked. I really enjoyed this. And I can't thank Nick enough, much like yourself. I'm giving this uh, in the same ballpark. We rarely do this. Um, and I'm giving this an A-. minus. Uh, it's creeping up into that nice. A category. This is a film I would wow. watch again. I would recommend to uh, just about anybody. Um, and it's just so consistent all the way through. Uh, it's not revolutionary. Uh, it's not going to change the face of cinema, but it's just a solid through and through uh, hu- human style war epic uh, without being so pretentious or pompous or full of itself. Um, you know, not to take away anything from these other films, but uh, this isn't trying to be Apocalypse Now. It's not trying to be Platoon uh, or Casualties of War, Born on the Fourth of July. Uh, this is just, you know, kind of a smaller indie side of that, if you want to think of it that way. But it doesn't skimp on the intensity. It doesn't skimp on the acting quality or or the performances or any of that. So, uh, yeah, A minus, dude. This is a solid film. I really enjoyed this. Awesome. Awesome. So, yeah, that is our review of The Beast of War or The Beast. At the time of this recording, it's actually available on Amazon Prime, which is funny because like a week or two ago, it actually it wasn't. So I think it just switched over on the on uh, like five days ago, literally. But yeah, so you should be able to still catch this one on Amazon Prime. Definitely worth your time. Nick, once again, if you're listening, we know you are. Thanks so much for your suggestion. We appreciate you reaching out. And we really hope that you enjoyed this special episode dedicated just to you, buddy. Uh, Thanks for being arguably our biggest fan. And uh, we hope to continue enjoying you or entertaining you rather with uh, more movies for season three, which should be firing up here in, I don't know, another couple months. Also on that note, just uh, keep in mind, we're trying some new things this offseason. If you haven't, go back and check out our bonus episodes where we're doing what's called five-minute reviews, if you haven't seen them. Uh, they usually clock in around eight and a half to ten minutes, but it's an esoterica <laughs> cinema five minutes, right? Like, and, you know, I need five minutes of your time sort of thing. It's never an exact five minutes, but for us... I mean, you'll never get a more concise episode of anything in your life. That's the case. And uh, (laughs) what we're going to be... What we're going to be doing moving forward, too, is uh, next month, we're actually going to be introducing a sort of sci-fi month. And we're bringing in a good friend of the show, Mr. Jesse from the Sudden But Inevitable podcast. And he and I are going to be having a very in-depth discussion about Neon Genesis Evangelion. 
which if you haven't heard of it, is an amazing late 90s anime, huge in Japan, like ginormous, everyone over there knows it, and it's a very unique take on the traditional mech anime with a lot of sort of philosophical, um, even pseudo-religious implications, um, a lot of, lot of, lot of metaphors going on in that one. So we're going to break that one down. We're going to be posting episodes every other week. And then in between those, Ryan and I will continue doing our five minute reviews and it's going to be focused on science fiction films. Uh, I cannot wait to talk about my first film. Uh, Ryan, I know you've got an exciting one that you were banding about. I think that you're going to end up doing, and I can't wait to hear what you have to say about that one. So stick around, guys, for uh, for our sci-fi listeners. We've got some interesting sci-fi stuff coming up. And for everybody else, we really hope you enjoyed this episode of Esoterica Cinema. Again, The Beast is on Amazon Prime. Go ahead and check it out. Nick, once again, thank you for being arguably our biggest fan and for listening to all the episodes and making this wonderful suggestion. Everyone else, feel free to reach out to us on Instagram or Twitter, Esoterica Cinema or EsotericaCinema at gmail.com to make your recommendations. And we will see you next time for another episode of Esoterica Cinema.